Turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to Nahum chapter 2. Last week, we opened the first chapter of a book that many of us are not all that familiar with, but it covers very familiar themes, as all of our minor prophets are. Uh, This one's a little bit distinct because we've seen over and over in the minor prophets that God deals justly and righteously with his people, Israel and Judah. When they sin, when they break their covenant fellowship with him, God will deal with them. He will discipline them, even up to removing them from the land. But we also see these promises of restoration that God brings. Nahum's a little bit different, first of all, because it deals with the people that are not his people. It deals with the city of Nineveh. Much like the book of Jonah over a hundred years before, this is a warning to a sinful people, but there's a difference here, and that is that Nineveh does not receive the promise of restoration. Nineveh's judgment is going to be full, Nineveh's judgment is going to be final because they utterly reject and rebel against God. We saw some important things about God's character as we opened that first chapter. Um, We go into judgment so often. And we think through it, especially in terms of the minor prophets, that we forget that the judgment of God reveals something of the character of God. And some of those things aren't always comfortable to us. Last week we worked to the idea that God is an avenger, that God brings vengeance on his enemies, that God is jealous for the sanctity, for the holiness of his name, for his worship, and for his people, and that God will rightly deal with those who stand against those things. We saw that God is described as angry. That God, again, is rightly and righteously angry at sin and at sinners. We try to make that palatable somehow. But to remove the anger of God against sin is really to remove the goodness of God. A good God must stand opposed to sin and sinners. But in the midst of all of that, we also see these repeated phrases that the Lord is good. That the Lord is patient that the Lord is slow to anger, that the Lord is a refuge to those who seek him. Even Nineveh had experienced the goodness and the patience of God. For hundreds and hundreds of years, he had allowed them to exist, although they were a wicked people. A hundred years before Nahum writes this, he sent Jonah to them to preach to that wicked city about the destruction that was coming. And when they turned, God relented. He held back from that disaster. He gave them an extra 100 years, although they would again fall into sin and violence and wickedness and rebellion. Because Nineveh won't turn. Because Nineveh won't seek God. God will move in judgment. But even as we concluded chapter 1, we saw God's faithfulness to his people. That even as God judges the wickedness of the nations around them, God is vindicating and proving faithful to his people. And it's not because they're good. It's because they're his. God is for his people, not because they deserve it, but because they belong to him. But the question is, what happens when God stands against you? That's what Nahum 2 and 3 answer. When God is for you, even though there's discipline, there's redemption and restoration, but when God stands against you, you move headlong toward your own destruction, and that's what we're going to see. Let's read the first couple of verses from Nahum chapter 2 to kind of set the stage for where we're going today. Nahum chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. This is what God's word says. The scatterer has come up against you. Man the ramparts, watch the road, dress for battle, collect all your strength. For the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel. For plunderers have plundered them and ruined their branches. Let's pray. Lord, it's so hard sometimes for us to see 
the righteousness in anger and in judgment. Lord, all we know is our fallen concept of these things. All I see is what anger looks like from my perspective. And my anger, Lord, is admittedly so often tainted by sin and self and pride. But yours isn't. Lord, in your perfection, you are able to be perfectly and righteously angry at sin and yet perfectly faithful and patient and kind with ruined sinners that you've called your own. So, Lord, as we open your word today, we ask what we do every week that you would open our eyes. Lord, open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your word. We are dependent on you, not only for understanding, but then, Lord, also for the strength to obey. So we ask that you would strengthen us to that task. We ask that you, through the power of your spirit, would help us to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. Lord, on our own, we're no better than Nineveh. On our own, we're no better than wicked Israel and Judah. We're no better. We're no more faithful. But Lord, for those of us that you have called your own, you promised to, begin, to complete the work that you began in us. What a remarkable promise that we look forward to. We love you and we praise you. We ask that you would speak to us through your word. In Christ's name, amen. Now, what if I were to give you the words, I told you so? Depending on whether you are giving those words or receiving those words, they are either sweet or very bitter to say. Uh, they're incredibly popular. Uh, I was not scanning for them, but even last night, I happened to walk by the TV and a commercial was on for a Burlington Coat Factory, of all things, and the tagline for the whole commercial was, I told you so. The lady said it like five times. So, Apparently, everybody knows what it means. And when I'm right, I love to say, I told you so. I told you that was going to happen. I could have told you that was going to play out. Uh, but on the other side of it, it's not so fun. When someone warns us about what's coming, when someone says, uh, if you pursue that particular course of action, if you carry on with that line of reasoning, if that behavior goes unchecked, this is what will happen. And of course, they wind up being right. And in our pride, we don't necessarily appreciate the opportunity to grow in those things. But what happens when it's God telling you what is going to come? What happens when it's God that is telling you exactly where your rebellion will wind up? That is exactly what's happening to Nineveh through the words of Nahum. God is telling them exactly what is going to happen. And as we move into chapter 2 and chapter 3 today, chapter 2 is going to open with this really vivid and graphic picture of the destruction that's coming. We're going to see in chapter 2 what's coming to the city of Nineveh. And then chapter 3, rather than just rehearse the destruction, it gives us the why behind the what. It's going to give us the reason for that destruction. So as we open up chapter 2, let's see what is going to come to this city. And as we jump into chapter 2, I want to do something a little bit different. Uh, typically, we start in verse 1 and move all the way through the end of it. I want you to drop with me down to verse 13. I want you to see the reason that Nineveh falls, not, not the reason when it relates to their behavior. That's going to come in chapter 3. But I want you to see the why behind Nineveh's fall when it comes to the power behind that. Because chapter 2 is going to be this incredibly clear picture of what it looks like when the city is undone. But look all the way down at verse 13. This is God speaking. He says, Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. And I will burn your chariots in smoke, and the sword will devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth, and the voice of your messengers shall no longer be heard. God makes it abundantly clear that Nineveh is going to fall, that they'll be cut off. He uses words like, uh, the voice of their messengers will no longer be heard. This is an utter end. They're not going to be seen or heard from again. But why is that going to happen? It is because I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. 
So we have to work through that for a minute because at the time when Nahum writes this, Nineveh is really at the height of their power. They are at the height of their influence. They are at the height of their military might. They are at the height of their terror that they've put on all the nations around them. From a human perspective, there is really nothing that could stand against Nineveh at this point. Their armies are absolutely feared all over the ancient Near East. Kings all around them regularly send them tribute to keep them from completely destroying their lands. But the reality is that when God sets his face against them, their armies, their wealth, their walls, it all means nothing. Because God in his sovereignty stands completely unopposed when it comes to men. Nothing in creation can stand against him. Nothing in creation can kind of thwart or, or move his will. And we have to work through that. Because there are people that we see as untouchable. People so wicked but so powerful that we see there's no way that they can be brought to justice. Sometimes that's kind of in a far-off political context. Sometimes it's in the context of our own workplace and that boss or that manager who just seems completely untouchable. Sometimes it's a little bit closer to that. Sometimes there's times when we see ourselves as untouchable. I know that God says this, but what's the worst that could really happen? I'm going to do things my way. I'm going to do this, even though I know that it's probably not right, even though I know that it's sinful. I'm going to do my own way. I'm going to pursue my own thing. And although we'd never say it this way, we kind of shake our fists at God and dare him to do anything about it. We're reminded that there should be a certain sobering fear when the creator of the universe sets his face against us. And as God stands against these people, it's not random. It's not that God is just picking on Nineveh because certainly there are wicked people all over the earth. It's because God in his goodness must stand against sin. And the reality is that whatever God stands against will fall, whether that's the walls of Nineveh or whether that's my own stubborn pride here. But there's another side to that reality. Because when God stands against sin and sinners, there's no hope for relief from judgment. What's the other side of that that's the blessed encouragement? When God stands for you, what can come against you? Romans 8 has some very, very familiar verses. Romans 8, 28 is that verse that says that God works all things together for good to those who love him and those who are called according to his purpose. Romans 8, 29 says that everyone that God predestined, he did that so that they might be conformed to the image of his son. Romans 8, 30 says that everyone that he predestined, he also called and justified and glorified. And that wonderful chapter, Romans 8, 28 says this, God works, or I'm sorry, Romans 8, 31 says, what will we say to these things? In light of that promise of God to work good, in light of that promise of God uh, to conform us to the image of his son, in light of that promise of God that those that he calls, he justifies and glorifies, he says, what will we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies who is to condemn? And we know that chapter finishes Romans 8, 38, that Paul says, I'm convinced, I'm persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, 
nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other thing in all of creation is able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. See, when God stands against you, there is nothing in all of creation that can spare you. But when God stands for you, there is nothing in all of creation that can come against you. It's the beauty of finding our refuge in God rather than in walls, in His promises rather than in other people. But we know that Nineveh is not humble or repentant. We know that Nineveh trusts in self, that Nineveh is prideful. And so the result is that God stands against them, and what is going to come is their complete destruction. And the result that we see here is this really graphic picture as we read through chapter 2. It says, The scatterer has come up against you. Man the ramparts, watch the road, dress for battle, collect all your strength. For the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel. For plunderers have plundered them and ruined their branches. We're reminded that the ones who plundered and robbed God's people, the one who overcame God's people, are now going to be overcome themselves. And I'm going to read verses 3 through 9. And I want you to just kind of get the sense for what this is portraying. This is some of the most graphic, the most visual writing that we've seen in the Minor Prophets. As I read through this, you can almost feel the chaos and the tumult and the war that is happening around it. So verses 3 through 9, the shield of his mighty men is red. His soldiers are clothed in scarlet. The chariots come with flashing metal on the day that he musters them. The cypress spears are brandished. The chariots madly race through the streets. They rush to and fro through the streets. They gleam like torches. They dart like lightning. He remembers his officers. They stumble as they go. They hasten to the wall. The siege tower is set up. The river gates are opened. The palace melts away. Its mistress is stripped. She's carried off her slave girls lamenting, moaning like doves and beating their breasts. Nineveh is like a pool whose waters have run away. Halt, halt, they cry, but none turns back. Plunder the silver, plunder the gold. There's no end of the treasure or the wealth of all the precious things." And you read that and you listen and you get the feeling of what it would be like to be in a city that is besieged and utterly done away with. And that's intentional. And we get the sense just from reading that, well, obviously God is going to pour out his wrath on Nineveh. But I want us to kind of look at some pieces of that, not because they detract from it, but I want you to see that this is more than just good writing. It's more than just visual writing. It's more than just communicating kind of the chaos of a battle scene. This is a promise. This is written almost 50 years before this attack takes place. When this is written, Nineveh is strong. Walls are secure. They dominate their neighbors. But God is promising that something very specific is going to happen. And five decades later, when the attack happens, it is fascinating how exactly like what Nahum said would happen is actually what unfolds. There comes a point in time when the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, the Medes, the Persians, and the surrounding nations have had enough of Assyria's dominance. And they bind together, and they join their forces, and they begin to march up the river toward Nineveh. And as they do, they sack city after city, and Nineveh knows the attack is coming. And so Nineveh begins to prepare and fortify itself. And when those armies come up against Nineveh, they have to lay siege to it for three months And it's interesting that verse 5 says, although they hasten to the wall, the siege tower is set up. It talks about a long struggle that is going to come. If you look on the next slide, it's that image of Nineveh that we brought up last week. And of course, this is an artist's rendition, but it does remind us that Nineveh is set on the banks of a great river there. 
on the banks of the Tigris River, and two of kind of the channels of that river actually flowed through the middle of the city. They provided water and they provided defense, some natural barriers for that city. Historical accounts tell us that the year of the siege of Nineveh was unusually heavy with rainfall and that the river was at flood stage. And whether Nineveh overflowed its banks, as some accounts say, or whether the invaders stopped up the water upstream and let it build up and then release the dam and let it flow down, we know that part of the reason that Nineveh was, over, was overrun was because the river undermined the wall and washed away everything in that section of the city, including the palace section of the king. And isn't it fascinating that verse says, 6 says, the river gates are opened, the palace melts away. Once Nineveh was breached, then the slaughter began and thousands were killed. Those who were spared were lined up and marched out of the city as captive slaves. Its mistress is stripped. She's carried off. Her slave girls lamenting, moaning like doves, beating their breasts. Nineveh is like a pool whose waters have run away. Halt, halt, they cry, but none turns back. Nineveh is an incredibly wealthy city. Not necessarily through trade, although they were major merchants, but mostly through conquer, through plundering. They stole the riches of other lands. And when they were overthrown, uh, that wealth now goes to their conquerors. There's a Greek historian by the name of Diodorus who described it this way. Unique among all the other cities that he described. He said, they plundered the spoil of the city, and it was a quantity beyond counting. Verse 9, plunder the silver, plunder the gold. There is no end of the treasure or of the wealth of all the precious things. And, of course, all of that leads to this cry of desolation and even mockery in verses 10 through 12. What's the point? Nineveh the Great has become Nineveh the Broken. And it doesn't become Nineveh the Broken because its neighbors finally get their act together. It doesn't become Nineveh the Broken because they are politically weak. It doesn't become Nineveh the Broken because their neighbors' armies are strong. Nineveh is broken because God sets his face against them. And what we see even from chapter 2, although it is written in this graphic visual style, is that God is involved in the details, sovereignly decreeing every detail, not only of the rise, but of the fall of the nations of the earth. Not just what would happen, but exactly how it would happen years and years before it actually occurs. And as we come to chapter 3, what we're going to see then are the reasons behind that reality. We're going to get a more complete answer as to why does this come. The big why is because God stands against them. But why is it that Nineveh must be dealt with? And once again, I want to start with what God says, his kind of broad reason for what's coming. It's his verdict, his kind of judicial final word on what he says. And I want you to skip down again a little bit. Look at verse 5 with me. Chapter 3, verse 5. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. That should sound familiar. And this time, what is he going to do? I am against you, and I will lift up your skirts over your face. I will make the nations look at your nakedness and kingdoms at your shame. Once again, that God says that he stands against them. And when God stands against you, it means there's no hope, there's no help, there's no escape. It means that judgment and justice are certain. And in this case, he says, I'm going to lift up your skirts over your face and make the nations look at you on your shame and nakedness. I think that is a graphic enough picture where we don't need a slide or a diagram. What he's saying is he's going to completely expose the weakness of what they are. 
He's saying that he's going to turn their pride into shame and humiliation. We're going to look at the pride of Nineveh in a moment, but understand that when God acts in judgment, there's no pride or arrogance left. We live in a time and in a culture when judgment is not only taken lightly, but when it's almost mocked. We've all kind of seen either through shows or documentaries or whatever, but those people that they get sent to prison and there's really no terror involved in it because when they go to prison, uh, that's where their friends are. That's where they have power. That's where they have influence. That's where they gain street credibility. And so to go to jail, to undergo the justice and the punishment is almost more of a a notch in their belt. It's more of a, a boost to their ego than anything else. And so even in judgment, they're defiant. Maybe you've heard it in this context. Well, I might be going to hell, but at least I know that all my friends will be there, right? That hell just becomes the place where people are finally free from the prying eyes of the religious hypocrites and all the goody-goodies, and they're free to do what they want with their friends. And the devil becomes kind of the RA over the party dorm, if you will. Colleges are starting. That's where my mind goes. And that's tragic. Because hell isn't a party. Satan is not running hell to the delight of his demons and the joy of the party crowd here on earth. Hell is a place of separation and torment. Hell is the complete separation of the presence of God that blesses, heals, restores, and comforts. And hell is the eternal presence of God in righteous, holy, terrifying judgment. See, judgment never exalts the guilty. It never brings pride to the guilty. God's judgment always destroys the prideful arrogance of man. And it always exalts the holiness of God. And the remainder of the chapter gives the evidence that supports that final guilty verdict. Chapter 2 is the how. Chapter 3 is the why. And the first reason that we see is really obvious from verse 1 to verse 3 is that Nineveh is a city of great violence. Woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder, no end to the prey, the crack of the whip, the rumble of the wheel, galloping horse and bounding chariot, horsemen charging, flashing sword and glittering spear, hosts of slain, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end. They stumble over the bodies. A graphic picture of a bloody and violent people. And one of the earliest ways that sin is put on graphic display in the whole Bible is by the shedding of innocent blood. Genesis 4, when Cain kills his brother Abel, murder is introduced to the world. God affirms his hatred of the shedding of innocent blood in Genesis 9, and he says why. He says that men are made in the image of God. And so when you kill the innocent, you destroy something that bears the image of God. The Assyrians had mastered murder. Assyrian records, not just the outside conquered people, but their own Assyrian records brag about how they would destroy the people they came against. How they would remove heads by the hundreds and pile them up outside of the city gates. How they would skin people alive and put them on the city walls. How the rivers would run red with the blood of their enemies. And Assyria killed so that they would gain power and wealth. Proverbs 6 
beginning in verse 16, says, There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who soars discord among brothers. You read that, and it doesn't take long to see that Assyria is guilty of those things that the Lord says he hates. Murder, violence, even lies are there in verse 1. As we move down a little farther, looking at verse 8, we can see how prideful they are. God asks the question, are you better than Thebes that sat by the Nile with water around her, her rampart a sea and water her wall? Cush was her strength, Egypt too, and that without limit. Put and the Libyans were her helpers. God says, Nineveh, do you remember Thebes? Thebes was another great city in the ancient Near East, this time a power center in Egypt. And even through the ruins there, you can see uh, some of the splendor of what that city was like. A center of power on the upper Nile. A place of storehouses and temples, tomb complexes and palaces. A city set on a river, a river that provided defense for the city. A city that was closely tied in with its neighbors that had them oppressed and terrified so that they pledged allegiance to them. Again, a city that was almost untouchable, it would seem, from a human perspective. But what happens? Verse 10, Yet she, that is Thebes, became an exile. She went into captivity. Her infants were dashed in pieces at the head of every street. For her honored men, lots were cast. And all her great men were bound in chains. Thebes was great and powerful and secure. But if you look at those pictures, what is Thebes? It's a ruin. And by the way, it was the Assyrians that did it. It was the Assyrians who had come in and overthrown Thebes at its most powerful. And now Nineveh in their pride sees themselves as untouchable. Their walls, their rivers, their armies, their palaces, their allies. And God says, don't you remember? Don't you remember that you have overcome a city that considered itself untouchable? And so Nineveh, verse 11, he says, you also will be drunken and will go into hiding You'll seek refuge from the enemy. Nineveh, you are going to be the ones who are overcome and overthrown. And then Nahum gives like these three short pictures of what that's going to be like. Verse 12 says, All your fortresses are like fig trees with first ripe figs. If shaken, they fall into the mouth of the eater. All those fortresses that you put all that faith in, they're going to fall so easily, it's going to be like somebody walking by a fig tree and just shaking it and the figs fall right into their mouth. Not a lot of work in that harvest. That's how easily your fortresses will fall. Put no hope in them. Verse 13, Behold, your troops are women in your midst. The gates of your land are wide open to your enemies. Fire has devoured your bars. Uh, your manly man troops, your big guys ready for battle, they're going to be like women. Not an insult to women necessarily, simply saying that they are going to be utterly incapable of defending against anything. And the last picture that he gives is that of locusts. Verse 15, they will, the fire will devour you, the sword will cut you off, it will devour you like the locust. Multiply yourselves like the locust. Multiply like the grasshopper. 
You increased your merchants more than the stars of the heavens. The locust spreads its wings and fly away. Uh, The idea that the enemies themselves are going to be like locusts, so fierce and so many in their devouring nature. But then he flips the picture and he says, your princes are like grasshoppers, your scribes like clouds of locusts. Not only are the enemies going to be like locusts, but your leaders, your scribes, your princes, they're going to be like locusts as well, only it's not the same picture. It's going to be like locusts sitting on fences in a day of cold. And when the sun rises, they fly away, like grasshoppers sitting on a nice cool wall. But then when the sun comes, when the heat gets turned on, they abandon you. Nineveh, all your leaders are going to flee when the day of trouble comes, and you're going to be left without anything of value, without any leadership, without any shepherd, and you will be utterly scattered. And that's the tragic end of Nahum. The tragic ending of Nineveh is this, that when they fall, no one mourns. How sad that in the fall of a great city, no one mourns them. Verse 19 gives this image of a wound. There's no easing your hurt. Your wound is grievous. Like an injured person lying there unable to save themselves. But instead of coming to help those who pass by, instead of feeling compassion or pity, what happens? All who hear the news about you clap their hands over you. People are going to rejoice at the destruction of Nineveh. People are going to be thrilled that they are humiliated and defeated. Why? For upon whom has not come your unceasing evil? This is only the second book of the Bible that ends in a question. And the only other one that does is the book of Jonah, written just over a hundred years before to what city? Nineveh. How fascinating. And if you remember the end of the book of Jonah, it ended with a question that highlighted what? It highlighted the grace of God. God says, should I not care about this great city? The animals, the children, those who are unable to tell their right hand from their left. Well, how does Nahum end? A question that highlights God's rejection of the wicked. And even in those two books, we are left with that tension that God is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and mercy, but that God will by no means clear the guilty. That God is just and patient. That God is good and an avenging God. Two things. Just two things for us to think about today as we wrap up. First of all, we need to ask the question, what happens when God stands against you? And I want us to think about this, and I want you to think rightly about this. Because I think that in our minds and in our culture and sadly in our Western church, we think that as long as we're not too bad, maybe God doesn't really care. That as long as I don't do the major things, then I'm mostly free to set my own agenda and set my own rules. I want you to think rightly because God stands against sin and God stands against sinners. And I don't want the tragic end of a life of self to be eternal separation. We have today while God waits. 
we have today while God in His mercy calls sinners to repentance. Don't assume that because God hasn't brought you to an utter end that God is tolerant or accepting of your sin or my sin. But that leads to the second, and that's to understand what life is for those that God is for. See, the historical destruction of Nineveh ought to be a point of strength and comfort for us. We might live in the middle of a wicked people. We might live in the middle of a world that is not only pulling itself apart at the seams, but is shaking its fist against the God who made it. We might live in a time and in a place where those who belong to God are hated, persecuted, rejected, or maybe even killed. The fall of Nineveh reminds us that God knows, that God vindicates, that God deals with sin. It's proof that God keeps his promises. The fact that you can look at a historical account of something and see it play out 50 years after it was written, down to details that might not even seem important to us on first reading, is proof that God keeps his promises to the word and to the letter. From the rise and the fall of nations right down to the promise of the resurrection of his people. God keeps his promises because God is always faithful. Let's pray. Lord, even though we might not be familiar with the minor prophets, how good it is to be reminded of those wonderful themes, that God is faithful. Lord, that you in your holiness and in your goodness don't tolerate sin. Lord, I pray that we would seek you and worship you as you are, that we would come to view sin in the same way that you do, that we would hate sin, that we would move quickly toward repentance that we would ask for forgiveness, that we would move toward worship and obedience. Lord, I pray that we would live lives of great faith and great trust, great hope, not that we will overcome in our own strength, but great hope in that you will overcome in your perfection, your holiness and your sovereignty. Lord, you freed us from the burden of anger and bitterness and vengeance because we can entrust judgment to you and not ourselves. And you've promised us that you will restore us, that you will redeem us, that you will resurrect us, ultimately that you will make us like your glorious son, Jesus Christ. And God, even as we see the fall of the great city of Nineveh, we are reminded that you are good and that you are faithful to every word of every promise that you have ever made. You are worthy of all of our worship, and we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.